Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. So gear up with the crew as they talk about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. <laughs> I love the room too. This is such a great setting. It's a, uh, it's my little kind of space, right? It's uh, you know, going to like Jay's house or you know, in David Rousey's garage, and you know, all these guys have so many things. Uh, you know, it's just my little collage of of things, and yeah, it's cool it's because really cool. Uh, you know, that's a hand carved Lord by Scott, and you know, that's actually one of our followers. He sent me that. He was making some stained glass and just showed up on the doorstep. That's, cool. like, that's pretty cool. That's really and cool. When we did the release 2021, this guy in Virginia uh, did that fish burn art. So, and then that's when I went and saw Paul, he signed that top one. Uh, oh, so I made like cool. a little collage, but he gave me those other two. So that was kind of earmarking that. That's when I went to the fly trap in Rockport randomly. I think I saw that. I must have seen it on Instagram or something because that's familiar to me. Yeah. I did, maybe you had a picture on Instagram that was there. I did. Okay. And so okay. that's where I, I just it. was killing time because I was going to go to a Jay Watkins, um, a Jay Watkins event where it's actually going to provide some opening remarks. Oh, that's cool. And uh, I was just waiting for Lowell, honestly. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, where yet? He's at the dentist. And, um, Anyway, so he ended up being late. So I'm like, I'm going to just go kill some time. So I was looking for some local tackle shops and the, and the fly trap was there. And I walk in and there's four guys sitting around a table and I'm just kind of looking through and, and brought, actually ended up buying that. Um, and so I was just sitting there and the uh, guys were talking. Hey, man, you know, welcome to the show if you, or shop. If you need anything, let us know. Hey, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. Where, where, are, you, where are you coming in from? Uh, from San Antonio, just down here, uh, just waiting on a friend. He's like, dude, I, that voice sounds familiar. Oh, that's funny. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, well, you know, that's cool. I'm like, uh, how so? And he's like, um, are you Chris Bush from Speckle Truth? And and that was a really humbling experience, man, because yeah, I'm like, I, I sure am. And so we ended up talking, man, for about an hour uh, more so about, you know, them listening and enjoying different episodes and people's messages. Uh, but then aside from that, um, really um, how they've tried to like change their own approach. And it, again, kind of those little realizations and affirmation that I'm in no way, shape or form, I'm looking to be famous. Yeah. Uh, but it was cool to get the feedback loop and that close yeah, the yeah, feedback yeah. loop. Well, and also, to you know what, I'm going to go back to something you said earlier to realize that you connected with people. Yeah. Well, first off, all that chatter, um, and you've heard a voice kind of in the background, and that's a pretty unusual way to start a podcast, but I'm going to run it there because um, typically I'm, every, hey everyone, welcome to the Speckle Truth Podcast, but this is a really unique opportunity for me because I'm sitting here uh, at my own house in our my little fishing room, right? We're, we're kind of looking through that, and I know you have way <laughs> more, Mr. Pat, but that sound, that, that chuckle, uh, that voice that you heard... Uh, is none other than Mr. Pat Murray, the CCA national president. Is that correct, Mr. Pat? That is correct. And so welcome to the Speckle Truth Podcast. Oh, it's my honor. I'm really excited to be here. I really am. I, I, I really am excited. Everything you do means a lot to me, so I'm, I'm proud to be here. 
Well, we've had, um, admittedly, for everybody who's probably just tuning in, <laughs> about an hour and a half long conversation pre this, <laughs> uh, which some of that may uh, come back through this conversation. But man, alive uh, to sit, you know, with you and talk, um, gosh, about so many different things it is really. Uh, an interesting part of of this process and journey, if you will. And, you know, I got a chance to speak last night at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. And, and uh, one of the, the people that were there asked the question, hey, what was your favorite podcast to do? And I gave him an answer. I'm not going to reveal that. Um, but um, I basically started into it as like, it's really hard. And honestly, there's no one that's better than the other because they're so unique because there's so many different people from so many different walks of life, areas, locations that I just, and we talked about this, I'm, I'm fed by people and people and, you know, um, just different engagements. So to that end, man, there's, uh, I love hearing your stories. I love you know, seeing the span of kind of command and control, getting back to that Air Force lingo uh, of what you do for CCA and what you do for fishermen. But I know it didn't just come overnight. And so if you can, sir, um, give us a little bit of history about yourself, uh, who, you know, Mr. Pat Murray is and and maybe how you got into CCA and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, no, that's great. And I, 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 it's it's unfortunate we didn't record the last hour and a half because there's been some really moments that got me super inspired. Yeah. Um, and 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 I'll tell you, um, for anyone listening to this, if I happen to drift, it's because I'm surrounded by so much cool gear um, that I could, in theory, get fixated on any one bait and think, "Wow, what did that catch?" Um, so, um, but you know, what's funny is that's kind of actually um, maybe the right way to frame for what what brought me to where I am with CCA and where I am with fishing and conservation is it kind of started with that, um, this fascination with fishing. And, um, and that probably is the alpha and omega for most people who really start to de dedicate themselves, um, you know, e either as a, as a pastime or as, as, a, as a lifetime is that desire to fish. And so that drove me from some of my earliest days where, you know, early days fishing with my dad, and um and seeing the resource and getting really really excited about it and um and then that led me to you know we talked about it earlier fishing guides very early on to me um were these like superstars like cowboys i mean they were because i was like you can make a living doing this this is <laughs> yeah. the best thing i've ever heard of yeah and um and i remember thinking that even like, so what eventually drove me to guiding was um, when I was in college, I was running some part-time trips um, that a couple of guides that were, were generous enough to give me some overflow. And, um, and back then, it was $225 for a day of fishing. And, um, and then eventually, and it was 300 for a full day. It was a half day and a full day. And you had to pay a referral fee. But I remember, so like, I'm a college kid. And so I go run a trip and... You know, I got like $300 bills in my wallet, which is like, you know, having yeah. like what you think you got like, you know, a million bucks. <laughs> and so immediately my head starts going, well, you know, man, maybe when I get out, if I run a few trips, I can like sleep in my truck and I can do this. You know yeah. I mean? this Because, you know, you're 20 something. You're like, and so that led me on this journey of, of fish guiding and starting to meet amazing people and getting inspired by people. 
and then really living sort of in the resource and realizing how precious it is and realizing how important conservation is and hearing stories of, of a group at that time, GCCA, and seeing people who were, you know, really into making sure that the resources were, were going to be managed well. And even some of the stories from years prior when there were gillnets and they weren't. Um, it just, I got just sort of intoxicated by the whole thing and really mm-hmm. never have looked back. 25 years later, I'm still working for CCA after, after Fish Guide. Yeah. Um, so you're from the Upper Coast or from yeah, the... From Houston. Houston, yeah. okay. Yep, born and raised there. Okay. And so, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about some of the guides that you kind of ran with. Mm-hmm. And, and one of one of those is a mutual friend. And uh, Lowell Odom. <laughs> Lowell. So you may or may not listen to this, Lowell, but... Um, uh, I'm going to make Lowell listen. I haven't talked to Lowell. <laughs> Lowell and I drifted, and it's funny, but Lowell and I did a bunch of fun stuff together. We had a lot of laughs together. So. Yeah, and so some of those that you were sharing with uh, a little bit earlier about some of the the God opportunities that y'all used to do, um, going to speak at certain things. Yeah, and, yeah. And do the, if you can expound a little bit on that again uh, for our for our listeners. Yeah, no, those gobs of fun back then because it, uh, it was a different – it was – well, it's always different. I mean, it's different now than it'll be 10 years from in the future and on and on. But, you know, we did, uh, I re- distinctly remember doing a Texas fishing game, or maybe it was Texas Fisherman then, but whatever seminar series where we traveled around. And it was when seminars sort of were just starting to go. Yeah. And there was like the Ron Binky series that had gotten big, as Binky and Bird series had gotten big. And so this was sort of one that was trying to parlay off of that. Um, unfortunately they landed Lowell and me. So maybe, maybe that's why there's not more seminar series now. I don't know, but we went around to cities and talked and, um, and, and again, it's funny. My takeaway is, uh, how hungry people were to learn. Mm -hmm. And, and that's probably that desire to learn is probably one of the best things that's embedded in fishing because there's inherent to that as a curiosity. And if there's a curiosity, there's a desire to improve your art, because I do think fishing is an art. Um, but I think that quickly switches to where you say, and I also want the resource to be there as I improve my art. Mm-hmm. And so I was fortunate that I got to knock around with a bunch of different guides through time, both ones that were contemporaries, um, but also folks um, that, like I say, the ones that I looked up to, the, the David Wrights of the world who, who's deceased now, um, and then just the amazing people that were around then in the upper Texas coast, people like Paul Brown, mm-hmm. people like Pete Tanner, um, uh, the amazing Maurice Esslenbaum, these folks that were, you know, again, they were heroes to me. And I'm a 20 something year old guy thinking, you know, I'm just trying to get better. And these folks, it's like they came from the mountain, you know, I mean, they knew they already knew so much and they had been fishing, you know, through periods when fishing was great and fishing was terrible and, um, and it was really through their experiences that my eyes got opened mm-hmm. and, uh, and I, and I saw not only, um, maybe that's what etched some of it, both the desire to pursue the resource, but also the desire to, to try to improve the resource. Was there throughout your guiding career, um, a bit of advice or, uh, a moment, uh, earlier on in your guiding career that kind of stands out to you? Uh, again, advice or a moment or an experience that that's kind of shaped maybe that mindset. Have you always had that mindset? No, that's a great question because um, you know there probably is. There's probably a lot of them actually. I the one that immediately strikes my my mind is a moment where I was blown back. 
I think great advice, the funny thing about great advice is it plays out through time. It even kind of changes sometimes. And I remember a day um, that I had all of my spots covered up. I'm a young fishing guide, and you're really trying to prove yourself every day. Um, maybe you always are, but I mean, I really was then. And I can't get on anything. And it's just... And I'm frustrated and I'm moaning like a baby. And I'm talking to a guy who really was one of my primary mentors, um, David Wright. And, um, and I'm complaining about everything. And he takes his crusty little finger and shook it at me. And I'm saying there's people covering up everything. He goes, well, you better hope they're always there. And I'm, and mm-hmm. stops me. And he goes, because if they're not, he goes, we're not here. Hmm. And, at that moment I stopped and I of course shut up because he yeah. <laughs> pretty much shut me down. Um, and I'm where my head went was, you're right, boy, if there aren't people out fishing, we're not booked and we can't go, you know, you can't go pay your mortgage and whatever. All. But what's funny is he was, he was speaking to something else too, that I've seen now manifest in 25 years of doing conservation work, which is if there aren't anglers there, there aren't stewards there. And if there aren't stewards there, that resource can be taken away, either either fished away or managed away from you. Mm-hmm. And and so I still, you know, this period sort of coming out of 2020 where we have this new wave of anglers, and I think there's people who haven't experienced getting run over to the degree they're getting to experience it now, which I'm not condoning running over people. Um, but we all better hope there's still anglers out there because the day we get out there and it's just you and me, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And we really are. Now, what bit of advice, uh, you know, kind of fast forward, um, would you give, um, one is just, you know, Pat Murray, but also two from being so involved with conservation, what bit of advice, uh, would you impart on either, you know, young anglers, uh, maybe anglers that are, you know, have kind of been around the fishery, uh, and old anglers and does that message change? Yeah. Wow. That's a complex question. Yeah. Yeah. Because it does. I mean, you know, it's well, it's probably the careful balance um, that we've we've spent some time talking about of making sure people are staying involved, but making sure they're learning the tenets of stewardship. And and it's hard to teach that we're we're fortunate now. I think the fishing culture has evolved so far, so far. I mean, jump back to the seventies, my goodness. Yeah. Um, but even jump back 10 years ago and I think it was different. And, and so I think it's also to, I find myself always wanting to push people to think of fishing as more of an art because with that comes a, a, a different desire, a deeper understanding that it, there really is a, a gift to it. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's its own culture in a lot of ways and you can improve in it. I think that's an important lesson as an angler mm-hmm. is to remember it's just like the martial arts or culinary arts or anything. You, you need to work at it. And, um, and, and there's a craftsmanship to that. Um, but also too, it's to make people look at it as this much more holistic approach mm-hmm. is that, you know, part of being a good angler is being a good conservationist. You can't have one without the other. You really can't. Yeah. And because if you truly understand that resource, if you understand the way every bayou and every bay and every flat and every reef, why they're all connected, because they are, um, if you truly understand that and you don't believe in conservation, I don't know what planet you're from. Because mm-hmm. the minute you put that whole puzzle together, you go, oh my goodness, this thing is wildly delicate. It's resilient, yeah. but it's delicate. And so, you know, to that point, you know, I had the opportunity, the 
remarkable opportunity to fish yesterday and record a, a YouTube episode with uh, Marshman Masson or Todd Masson. I, I know mm-hmm. you all, y'all know each other. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it, for those that don't know Todd, outdoor journalist, he's from the same neck of the woods that I'm from uh, over there in New Orleans, in the greater New Orleans area. And so he's been in the outdoor. I mean, I've had him on a podcast and been an outdoor journalist for a long time. And in short, you know, we he came in and uh, he wanted to to fish the Texas coast and kind of see what it's about. He's not a he's not a wade fisherman. That's so it's kind of a new, uh, yeah, kind of a new approach for him. And so we filmed the show. Had a great great trip. Uh, ended up, ended up I think we caught about like fifty or fifty five trout. That's awesome. <laughs> You know, decent fish. Uh, and so we're eating at Peps in Portland. Uh, by the way, ribeye, quesadilla, <laughs> money. Uh, anyway, thank you, Colton Mitchell. I know you're probably listening, but uh, but anyway, um, we're sitting there and I'm like, you know, Todd, uh, with, with genuine sincerity, like, you know, what'd you think of today? And he said, Chris, uh, I've been thinking about it all morning. And... Um, that was probably the best trout fishing trip I've had in two years. And he goes, you know what the sucky part about today was? Is that I had to come to Texas to do it. Mm. You know, and I can empathize with that comment because, you know, growing up in Southeast Louisiana and where we're at and what we've grown up with, um, there was nothing, you know, growing up where you could just kind of pull up to a point, literally put your Cajun anchor down or probably even an actual traditional anchor down. Um, you know, and fish a point and catch 50 trout. And those, you know, gone are the days uh, of doing that. And, and it takes a lot more skill. It, it's just the resources change. It's it's evolved to, to some extent. And there's kind of that self-realization. But I thought that spoke of two things uh, as we're, as I was reflecting on that response, which was how, bl- how much of a blessing it is for me to kind of fish in a fishery here now. Uh, where I've seen it, I've been, you know, in Texas, you know, for seven years, uh, which is obviously nothing, but I've seen enough. I've, I've witnessed a freeze of, you know, so I've kind of seen, seen it evolve in, in the active management. I think that, you know, biologists and, you know, CCA and all these organizations are trying to do to safeguard a resource. Sadly, it, it feels like Louisiana is a little bit behind that power curve of making those, you know, decisions to impact a fishery, hopefully long-term. In other words, uh, their ability to like basically not think past the, the nose on their face, you know, and it's, it's sad because it's, you know, certainly one of the greatest fisheries that I've ever been in, in my life, but, uh, it's hurting right now. And, and hopefully, uh, the anglers there can identify that and then hopefully overcome that. And so your words of advice of, Hey, anglers here in Texas, really everywhere, take an active role in learning more about not only how to catch them, but also how to be a better steward for them. Yeah, it really does. And also to remember that you can make an impact. And mm-hmm. and that's true in every part of fisheries management. Um, people forget that. People forget they feel like they don't have a voice. And, you know, because sometimes it feels like that, you know, because you say, well, or how can I have a voice? And you said, well, you can, you know, you can go to a public hearing and make your voice heard. And they're like, yeah, well, you know, where does that go? Well, sometimes you'd be surprised. I mm-hmm. mean, I get sometimes it feels like a dead end. Sometimes it probably is a dead end. 
Um, but I always tell people the key thing about activating is that you activated. There's a, there's a, there's a process you've put in motion in your own life when you do that because you've changed the way you look at things and you're no longer passive. And, and I think that's one of the key things for people is that they realize if they'll just realize they can make a difference, then they actually can make a difference. Mm -hmm. And it may be in a different way than they think when they start. Um, and I mean, I know that when I started with CCA, I was actually a volunteer at first and I was donating trips as a fishing guide. And then when I went to work for CCA, I was like, I probably had a pretty Pollyanna view of it at that point and, um, and was thinking, man, yeah, 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 go out and, you know, save the resources and do great things. And, but, but all of a sudden it's like, well, you're part of a process when you do that. And, and realizing that indeed it is a process and that things never move as quickly or necessarily even in the way you want, but that you can make sure they're moving. Mm -hmm. And, and we are definitely blessed in Texas, as in any number of states, to have really good management. It's not, never perfect anywhere, but right. um, Texas is pretty darn blessed. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, and I'm, again, not criticizing a state, but it wasn't long ago in, in the state of North Carolina. They had recreational gill netting. Like, what? You know, I, I mean, recreation, I don't, you know, you yeah. just think that's like, you know, I mean, <laughs> we had gill netting here, not really in the in the in terms of, you know, time, it, that was yesterday. And I think we always need to remember that. Yeah. And, and I don't mean so much as, oh gosh, it, it can be so bad. It's more, oh gosh, what can we do? Mm -hmm. Because the thing is, if we've made that much progress um, in that amount of time, that's pretty incredible. And you mentioned having gone through a freeze. I think that's a really important point you made because um, you know, when we were talking about, you know, what makes you think about conservation. So I started guiding in about 1989. And so I'm like, you know, whatever that is, 21, 22 years old. And, um, I got this dream. I'm going to do this. And we got a devastating freeze. I mean, it was at least in the upper Texas coast, compare that to the 2021 freeze, they're night and day. Mm -hmm. I mean, our stuff was dead and we didn't know it at first. We gradually figured that out. <laughs> didn't take too terribly long. Um, and, you know, they always say in a business cycle, come in at the bottom. Well, sure enough, I was right there. I was <laughs> at the bottom. But it really made me, you know, we came from fishing in 88 and 89 where fishing was pretty good. And, and it fell apart. And boy, it teaches you how fragile it is. Because that's not something that somebody mismanaged or, oh my gosh, that was a bunch of fish hogs. It was just nature. It yeah. happened. The Lord giveth and he taketh away. And they were just gone. Yeah. And they came back. But we see all the same thing in 2021. I think sometimes, too, lessons embedded in that. 2021 taught me a lot. Because, okay, so I'm thinking Baffin is just toast, you know, after that freeze. But then now I know, I mean, that there's been a lot of fish there. Mm -hmm. And so that's that moment where... It's kind of like all of a sudden when you go, you know what, I, I think the weatherman's wrong sometimes, you know, yeah. and, and sometimes we can't predict. It's not someone's trying to make a mistake. It's just that we have limited knowledge of it, which shows caution is probably a good approach. To that end, though, and, you know, to the release 2021 Texas decal that's here, um, you know, going back to trying to make a difference and that's kind of maybe pretentious, but in, in it's in no way, shape or form trying to be. Um, but it was more so like, that's, 
that's just what I'm going to do. It's, it's post freeze. Mm-hmm. Obviously there was a kill. Um, I'll, I'm going to take it upon myself personally to just not keep anything, uh, for the rest of 2021. My wife was probably the most upset <laughs> <laughs> because our kids, uh, absolutely love, you know, eating some, some fresh fried yeah, fish sure, and, sure. and it's the one meal that I can cook and everyone will eat. Yeah, that's great. Uh, anyway, but, uh, so man, I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to create a decal. I talked to, you know, Dave flat over at release over 20. We kind of partnered with it and, and then it kind of gained a little steam once we actually made a logo, if you will, which is actually mm-hmm. the Speckle Truth logo, just with the hashtag underneath. And anyway, it was like a simple, like, hey, man, I'm just going to release them all. Um, and, and so as people like, hey, man, you know, I really like to get behind it. And, you know, I'd like to do the same thing. And um, I say all that to say, you know, it. We I think we mailed out like, ugh close to like 1500 stickers, awesome. which is great. That's you know, awesome. not everybody I know, you know, took part of it in it and kind of, you know, stayed with the actual, um, you know, the intent, but it's okay. The takeaway I took from that was, is yeah, we've had an event. Um, and I would venture to say, and obviously with the dawn of social media, it's a different story, but, um, even if there wasn't social media, I don't think that the conversation would have been more gore, uh, geared towards, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm going to go ahead and give back this year mm-hmm. versus like in past where it's like, man, it's just took a hit. But once he gets healthy again, just right back after yeah. it. Right. And so I think now at least the, the conversation and the dynamic in, in the, the appetite is a little open for people to be a little bit more self-aware of what they can and can't do to impact a fishery. Um, and so, you know, thoughts on that, or if you're seeing that not only from a, you know, a CCA, but also from a national level, uh, I mean, is that something that you're kind of seeing no, uh, across various states? That's funny. You described that really well because, um, and I don't think I had really thought about that because as we talked about it within the context of 1989, you're right that 89, at least for me, it was more like I was waiting for it to get ready again so I could get back after it. And you're right. 2021 did feel different. And, um, and I don't think that's just my perspective. I, cause I think, I do think it was different in that. I think it changed some people much, much more permanently in a good way, yeah. in a good way where I think the, the fragile, delicate nature of it, um, because that boy, if 2021 thought taught me anything, that was one of the many things yeah. it taught me. Um, 2021 actually did inspire me because of efforts like you're talking about where people really did step up. Yeah. I mean, and fishing guides that were going to run, you know, catch and release only trips. And, um, that was not what happened after 89 at all. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm not saying we were terrible people. Um, yeah. it was just a different culture and time and I was among them. Um, you know, I was ready to go get back after it and start putting 40 in the box as quick as we could, because <laughs> that just yeah. felt like what you do. Yeah. And I have not seen that play out after 2021. And I, and I too heard so many people, myself included, who very personally, for my own personal reasons, did not keep a speckled trout in 2021. Um, after, you know, I didn't want to keep for a year because it's like, yeah. you know what, I'm just not. And, and um, although not unlike your kids, I suffered through um, not eating any trout, which I do enjoy doing a lot. Yeah. Um, I, uh, it really was cathartic because it reminded you 
um, that, you know, were the trout that I was going to release going to make a difference in the big picture? No, but that doesn't matter. Again, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier. It's about intention. And the mm-hmm. minute you change intention, you put things in motion sometimes. Um, think about the original 14 people that organized what became GCCA. These are 14 anglers who said, this gill netting is ruining it for us. And so we're going to go make a difference. They had no clue at that time that, that what they were going to put into motion. They knew they were going to go do their best to stop the gill netting and the destructive nature of it in their waters. Mm-hmm. But they never thought they would create a movement that's still moving today. And so I think the same thing is true no matter what what it be and in what region. Because I am seeing more conservation in other regions. I mean, you're seeing folks who look at the fisheries differently and and in a good way mm-hmm. again maybe not everywhere maybe not holistically maybe not perfectly um, but there's definitely a much better attitude i think toward it and it's been an evolution yeah it is mike blackwood and and maybe some of the other original 14 i don't know if how many of them are alive or they well still? it's a great question because i think there's like hundreds of them that are part of that 14 because oh. i've heard so many people through the years i don't technically know who they are it's okay. funny um and and interestingly um our who we attribute as our founder walter fondren who was a, a mentor to me he wasn't at that first meeting okay uh, many people don't know that yeah um but there was a, I remember seeing a sign-in sheet from a later meeting and there were you know names like joe doggett and mm-hmm. other names that would be very familiar to people bob brister early on and and names like that but it's probably it the answer would probably be it's all of them because yeah you know, that early movement was like everything in, in jerks and surges and all these different things that mm-hmm. it stopped and it would start and get going. And I mean, but once they got going, they got going. Yeah. And because they realized that they could make a difference and that they had to make a difference. So they were going to, and these were a bunch of strong willed people. Um, and, and maybe that's the defining moment in recreational fishing, at least in our little tiny world of that moment that you can and you will make a difference. Yeah, and during that podcast with Mr. Blackwood, uh, you know, that was kind of the thing, and hopefully I was trying to relate to people, was, you know, um, him being a part of kind of that GCCA yeah, world yeah. And, and that that organization. That organization, look, I'm, you know, a generation removed from that um, in a completely different state that was uh, basically challenged with the same harvest methods, i.e. gill nets, that was having a decimating uh, outcome to our redfish populations. And, and if GCCA didn't exist by those you know, group of anglers, mm-hmm. however many there were, um, those gill nets would not have been out of Louisiana yeah, waters yeah. because they were championing the efforts. And, yeah. and I think... You know, again, I'm in the Air Force and we talked a little bit about it in, in understanding organizational dynamics and in, 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 in organization. Uh, we, I talked about chain of command, if you will, and understanding the, the level of impact that you can have at the very tactical level, mm-hmm. at the very bottom level, and how much of an impact that can have up the chain of command, if you will, but also out. So I've always preached to my squadron, basically 
my goal as your leader is to basically communicate up and out. I want to give mm -hmm. you the space for you to do your job. And so I see that in you, Mr. Pat, honestly, is, you know, as a CCA national president, as a person who's advocating for, you know, a resource, uh, as a person who's kind of communicating to some extent on our behalf up and out to the masses of how, why and how this is important and how it impacts uh, me, just, you know, Chris Bush here in Texas trying to target some trout, you know, <laughs> and, and have you ever like conceptualized that and, and, and your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I mean, well, we were talking about it earlier and I think you did capture it within sort of the greater metaphor of, of anything, any great organization mm -hmm. is really based on that model. And, and, and really it is, I mean, CCA's model is founded in its grassroots. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it, if it's not, it, it would be nothing without that. And, and not only in the ability to affect change, but also in the ability to be relevant and, and so in, you know, communicating out the, the key thing is, is, is the communication coming back in, which mm -hmm. comes through our, you know, local chapter networks, our state boards, our national boards, they're all populated with volunteers and, and it's people of all different levels of, you know, fishing sophistication and conservation sophistication and folks who come sort of to it for all different reasons, mm -hmm. but it's all part of that movement. And at the heart of it, I think this is what you really captured. You were talking about how leaders are, are amazing at engaging. And I think that is precisely right. And what we find is that every sort of aspect of CCA, you keep finding these leaders, these communicators, these folks. And, and, and you know, it's, it sounds corny, but the, the great communicators are the great listeners. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, they're, 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 someone who's purely an orator is just a speaker box, you know, it's, it's two way street. And, and so the great leaders, the great communicators, the ones that can affect change are the ones that are listening. And it's, it's making sure it is from, from, from all the way, mm -hmm. you know, on all, on all levels of the organization. Yeah. So, you know, guiding in 89 and coming in as a guide in 89, uh, 2022 CCA national president, did you ever think? No, I didn't. I mean, like, I did, I did, have yeah. you like maybe reflected back on, oh my God, like what just happened here? Well, I just, <laughs> <laughs> maybe the world is saying that. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> what just happened? Um, is, uh, no, you know, I mean, is, like, was that your goal? I mean, or, or you know, it, was it, that a vision it, of it yours? Wasn't, I, I do. I, I, when I was fish guide, it was to be, it was to be fishing guide. Yeah. yeah. And then it was to, um, at that time there was a thing called the guides cup and it was to win the guides cup. I mean, I'm serious. Like, yeah, so yeah. it's like 1995 and I, I win the guides cup and, no and I'm, well at that time, you know, it's just so funny cause you are where you are. And at that time I was like, okay, man, I can die now. You know, I won the guides <laughs> cup. I'm serious. And, and, um, and because I'm around all these people that, you know, we were talking about being surrounded by these amazing fishermen and you're just still, you're just awestruck by them. I mean, you know, to this day I am. I mean, I think of, of grand old Mr. Pete Tanner, who's deceased now, but I mean, I, I, I'm as awestruck by him, the way he could fish the Gallison Causeway and Paul Brown and, and all those guys that I'm talking about. And so at that time, I'm just, you know, again, some 20 somethings kid. And I'm thinking, this is the coolest thing ever. 
And, um, and so, you know, then I go to work for CCA and I just feel incredibly blessed to be there. And I'm like, well, I want to, you know, hopefully make a difference. And, and then you just kind of keep moving along. And, and I always get reminded, um, that, and, and I lose this plenty of times. Um, but there's a, there's an ancient Japanese saying is, um, never lose your beginner spirit. And I think that is probably, there's probably no better crucible to see that in than, than angling is, is, and in conservation is not losing your beginner spirit. You think about how hungry you've been at various times in your life Mm -hmm. and how, what happens is that's what drives you forward. And then it's that moment where then maybe you get there and you say, okay, well, what can I do now? And Mm -hmm. so, um, I don't think I ever envisioned anything other than I envisioned that I was going to keep going and keep trying to make a difference and, and hopefully keep going and making a difference. Yeah. However that manifests, which right. I have no clue how that manifests eventually. Pops always said in his infinite wisdom, uh, basically <laughs> every time he would go fishing, you know, he gets super excited. Honestly, um, when we would drive, I'd open a gate, we were driving to the launch and, you know, you'd start to see that sun, you know, starting to peak. Let me rephrase that. Just that first light peaking mm-hmm. over the horizon, you know, you're starting to see, you know, some lighter uh, blue starting to show up on the yeah. water's edge. And and as we're driving on that gravel road, never forget it. Um, he would always say, you know, man, if, if this ever gets old, you know, put me out the pasture. See, that's so you awesome. Know, and that's, that's it. Because he has done this for decades, and has seen that same road, but probably that same landscape time and time again. And it was the hope of a new day of what it could bring that just like, he was like a kid and he's still like that. I mean, like we go fishing, he he came in, you know, and in June for my change of command and we got a chance to go down to Corpus and and just fish for a day. And and I was telling that to Todd as well. And you know, the, the thing that makes it great about fishing with pops is that, we always have great days. Now, why do we always have great days? Not that we're great fishermen. Uh, now, I do think we have some experience that helps us eliminate some water. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just really enjoy each kind of other's company. And so there's just this like symbiotic relationship of just understanding each other, uh, understanding maybe how we can read and eliminate water. And then all of a sudden, it just happens to, to be a good day. Uh, but he never, to this day... and since that trip, you know, the night before he was fired up, yeah. you know, we're rigging up tackling See, and putting a box. About. Hey, what do you think I should throw here? Yeah. G- give me one more of those. And he puts it in his yeah. chest pocket and uh, dude, you've caught like a bazillion trout. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go catch maybe, you know, 20, 30 more tomorrow, you know, and he didn't care That's uh, that because that is, yeah. that is that beginner spirit. Yeah. Man. And so now it's yeah, so awesome. Pops, man. And, and that's, that is the great thing about, uh, a spirit like that is there's no way to stop it. It keeps going. And it's, it's what ultimately will get us the next level and the next level and the next level in conservation too, because you can't have a spirit like that and not care about the resource getting better. And, um, there's a quote I often use that I won't bore you with, but the, the, the punchline in it is fishing is a perpetual series of occasions for hope. And that's really what it is. Yeah. And that's where we find in that embedded in that statement is the answer to that, that beginner spirit. 
is that there's hope and there's hope that I'm going to get a bite, but there's also hope that we can make sure the resources are in good shape. Mm -hmm. There's hope that we can improve them in some areas. There's hope that we get to go again and that there'll be spots to fish that haven't been excluded. And it's really important that we always hang on to that. Mm -hmm. It really is. And, and, and your dad's spirit of, uh, but it's funny too, though, I will say, I guarantee you there's all kinds of people listening to this that were so into your description of that sunrise and first break, because we all feel that. I mean, you really can't get sick of it. I mean, you can't, it's, it's, it's the one thing that, I mean, you, you can actually do that again and again and not catch them and still get excited the next day. That's incredible. If you think about it, it it is, um, it just, I mean, Todd yesterday, you know, we're looking to the east is kind of broken up by a little level set of clouds. So the sun almost was split with that one cloud. And yeah, the same thing, man. It never gets old. Yeah, never. Never, never gets never. old. I mean, so much so you can look at a photo of it on Instagram <laughs> and go, man, I'm getting fired up. And you're looking at a right? photo. And that's kind of the social media type thing now is like, if somebody's posting a sunrise pic, mm-hmm. it's because they didn't catch them, right? Yeah. <laughs> because at least there's something to take away hey, from Hey, you know, it's funny you say that. I actually, I, I, I've written that before where I made fun of it, where people go, you know, it was just a great day to go fishing. And I, I particularly when I was a fishing guy, I'd go, that means you didn't okay. get them. Because that sunrise would have been better if you'd been That's locked right. up. <laughs> That's right. But I will say, um, particularly as I've gotten older and seen more sunrises and sunsets, I do think I embrace them a little differently than I did when I was younger. I do yeah. think I do. Maybe, maybe I just don't catch them as well as I used to. He, he's <laughs> always had like a strong affinity for not to die, you know, beat this dead horse, but my dad has always had like a strong uh, appreciation for sunrise. A very, uh, very religious, spiritual man. Um, and really, his thing was like just a, a true blessing for yeah. that day. And then it is; it's a blessing to be living that day and what am I going to do to kind of, um, bring glory to, to that, you know what I'm mm-hmm, saying? Not mm-hmm. again, not to go down the spiritual path, but so, so much. So it was like, we would drive and be, you know, driving across Lake Washington and Port Sulphur and, you know, sun start, the sun would actually be coming over the horizon. Mm-hmm. We had that whole, you know, kind of point and click digital camera, uh, before cell phones and all that stuff. He would pull the boat off plane and I'm like, <laughs> 120 dude let's go we gotta yeah, get to the yeah, surf yeah. or whatever it is and um he would pull the boat off plane hey get the camera man like, bro seriously you can't wait like 15 <laughs> more minutes now nah, i gotta take a picture look at that and that's like, awesome so i go in his like he had an orvis bag and pull it up give it out to him take two pictures like all right i'm good and right like, back at oh, it right like oh my gosh but i'm 41 now uh he's 76 yeah, we go fishing. Hey, son, look at that sunrise. Uh, yes, sir. See, that's yep. so timeless. So man. now I appreciate it a lot more because I I see the wisdom in, in kind of that, that yeah. mindset. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. No, 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 I no. Love that's pops, not, that, no, the thing is because, I, I again, I think you're making that point is that, you know, it's really, it's there's a respect in that. And there's a respect for, when I say the resource, I mean the sun rising is a part of that. And yeah. it's emblematic of that. Because I, I won't for a minute impose what, what that means to him, but I know sunrises to me, it's that possibility, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the start, you yeah. know, and it's going to be great. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, that's a deep statement that you're making. 
down south lures has been making lures for the inshore angler for years now and it's easy to see why. From their 4 inch southern shad to their much larger DSL supermodel to the 3 inch burner shad, their versatility is really in every angler's arsenal. Better yet, they're actually made here in the USA as well. So support this Texas brand that supports you the fisherman and next time go check out the hashtag swims in a fall action of a down south lure. Real Sportswear humbly started making shirts for a few local fishermen. Rooted in simplicity and utility, Reel's minimalist approach is a reflection of what binds the fishing industry together. Now found throughout many coastal retailers, their lineup of comfortable and functional gear aims to make your time in the water a success. So next time you're gearing up, wear what guides wear and consider Real Sportswear. Despite its unique name, Stinky Pants Fishing has been making wade fishing gear for the Texas angler for years. Located here in Texas, they make anything from boga floats to boxes, stringers to wade fishing straps, really anything that the inshore angler needs to make their time on the water more efficient and more effective. So check them out at stinkypantsfishing.com and get some equipment to make you a better wade fisherman. I wanna welcome Waterloo Rods as our season three's newest sponsor. Located in Victoria, Texas, Waterloo builds some of the most functional rods for any inshore application. Whether you're in the market for a carbon mag, an HP light, or a slam mag, or their Salinity series, definitely check them out. Also, check out their Waterloo Pro Shop, which carries most, if not everything, that the inshore angler needs here along the Texas coast. So next time you're in the market for a rod, definitely check out Waterloo Rods, and you might as well fish the best. Mira Lure is an iconic brand found in almost every inshore angler's arsenal. From their 17 or 27 MRs, to the Mira Mullet or the Top Dog, even their soft plastic lineup, as well as the Paul Brown series Fat Boys, these lures have been trusted by many anglers across the Gulf Coast and beyond. So next time you're out there looking to fire up a bite, remember, tie on a Mira Lure and turn on the bite. Texas Custom Lures and the original Custom Corky are back again for season three sponsors and we couldn't be more appreciative. These lures and colors, which are produced by some of the most renowned anglers up and down the Texas coast have been producing for decades. So whether it's a Double D or a Fat Boy Floater, and Plum Nasty, Texas Turnip, just to name a few, remember next time you're looking for that next big bite, the big girls aren't colorblind. Now, you did mention uh, earlier, we were talking about it, man, what a unique um, story. And that was, you know, having been, and we were talking more about L. Scott Murray's book in the day, because we were talking about, you know, again, kind of generation removed from, you know, a fishery on the day in which Jim Wallace broke, mm-hmm. you know, Mr. Blackwood's state record. Yeah. Um, and in L. Scott Murray's book, you know, how many double digit fish were caught and, yeah. and weighed in that day? Yeah. Well, you have even greater, not necessarily insight, but, but a much, you know, different perspective and context to that day because you were here, lived it in the guiding community. Yeah. No, so I, 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 that was an awesome story. I, so well, I just remember, I, it's funny that, you know, what do people remember in time and, and in the in the fish world, I so vividly remember as those stories started to filter back from Baffin, and um, and there was a, a tackle shop Pines Plaza that was sort of our little mecca, mm-hmm. and um, and you know you started hearing these stories. And I remember it was Paul Brown was the first one who told me you know about these fish and and probably James Plog 
at the same time. And, um, and I lived on Tiki Island and was a fishing guide, but I was, you know, an upper coast guy. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm fishing at that point, Galveston complex and probably farther South. I was really fishing was East Matagorda mm-hmm. um, in terms of guiding. I mean, obviously fished other parts of the coast, but you know, fish like that, that's like someone telling me that they caught a, you know, a brontosaurus. I'm like, mm-hmm. what? Yeah. How did they catch that? Um, I mean, I knew there were, you know, epic fish there, but that story um, was just ringing through our community. And it's it was funny what a big deal it was. So it made such a stir over the corky too. That was one thing that, that maybe some folks, you know, when they hear stories of that catch and that time, is that, you know, a lot of people didn't even know what a corky was. And so Paul Brown's making those things. I mean, he's pouring them. He's, he's airbrushing them. He's, I mean, he is truly the, the master's hands that he is. And, and they were selling them at, um, at, at, at cut rate, which is Fishing Tackle Unlimited. And they actually had to put a limit on how many you could buy. That's <laughs> and it's, I mean, yeah. you talk about the, the original supply chain problem. I mean, yeah. because, you know, Paul could only make so many <laughs> and, um, and, but that shows the fever it created because all of a sudden this sort of, you know, obviously there are plenty of big trout fishermen and, and there were lots of people that were catching lots of big trout, but it opened a lot of people's eyes because when a state limit gets, or a state, state record, record gets broken and then they caught all these other fish, you're like, whoa, there were a lot of people who didn't even, you know, I mean, they'd never even heard of something like that being possible. Were you throwing corkies before Jim broke? Yeah, yeah, because we were yeah, a bunch of us in yeah. that in that space that were friends with Paul, and he was, um, he was, you know, ta- he he was getting information from himself from some of those anglers I'm talking yep. about, you know, be it Bubba Silva or um, you know, or Maurice or or Pete, and then um, and then a bunch of fishing guides, you know, Blaine and Mickey and and. Uh, Tim Young and James and all of and Daryl and all these folks, we were all fishing those baits and um, fishing his tails, fishing in you know soft plastics. And then he had he was making these corkies and they worked and it was really fun because the funny thing about Paul is he's um, you know he's brilliant in design, but he's also a listener. And so you'd go say something to him, and lo and behold, like you'd come back by the house and 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 he'd have something like whittled (laughs) and it's like what do you mean and and then i mean i'd talked to him about various things and i remember because i remember a time drift fishing in west bay and we targeted some some big fish out in some ultra clear water and and it would be perfect for a glow corky but the corky just wouldn't sink right the way we were drifting Mm -hmm. and um i remember coming to him and saying paul man you know i can't quite fish these right there and I'd, and I'd rather not fish jigs. I'd rather do this. And he's like, well, you know, he sits and thinks about it. He goes, well, why don't we just put a little bit of solder in the nose of it? And so lo and behold, he goes and does that. And, and I, I still remember sitting in his little living room and he puts this piece of solder in this glow corky and he had this goldfish aquarium that he'd, it was sort of his lure test area. So those goldfish got to see a lot of cool designs, I want to tell you. Yeah. And um, and he drops it in there, and it, it just slowly glides down, like, nose first. And it's like, so it literally, he sends me off the next day with a little string of solder to try different weights on it. And 
And it was amazing. Like you'd go into his workshop and it was kind of like Frankenstein's lab. There'd be all this weird stuff. Like when he created a little squid for a while. And I remember, kid, yeah. yeah, it was like the squid jig. And, um, I remember Plog got into it for a while. I was actually catching a lot of fish with it. Yeah. And, um, he just never stops experimenting. I mean, it's just this inventor's eye that I marveled at. And, you know, we talked about all the characters in fishing. There's so many cool characters. I mean, I'm sure the same, I know the same's in hunting and in golf and in probably everything else. But for some reason, I guess just because being a, a lifelong angler, the, the characters are so cool. We have some neat spirits out there. Concur. Uh, mainly because, like you, uh, I always wanted to be a fishing guide. You know, growing up and, and reading Louisiana sports, I mean, that's why it was a very surreal moment for me because Todd Masson was the editor-in-chief yeah. of Louisiana Sportsman, which I could not wait for every month issue. It was freaking like 200 pages thick. <laughs> um, and then uh, it was a surreal moment to write for them yeah. uh, personally. But the point being is, you know, 1993 to 1995, I mean, if you'd have asked me to career day, uh, what I was wanting to do, it had been a fishing guide like you because many of the ones that I had seen and known or heard of um, in that space, yeah, were, were gods, man. I mean, yeah. those were like the King Griffey Juniors and the... That's exactly... You know, that's, like that's, those, those were my guys. Exactly yeah. how I looked at it. And so uh, a cool moment for me, I guess, uh, was actually in Mobile. I was actually speaking at uh, the Alabama Coastal Fishing Association um, I guess it was like a general membership banquet, really large chapter, man. It was amazing. Awesome event. And they were getting ready to do battle of jigs. I think I shared this with Rich Rutland, um, on a previous podcast, but, um, anyway, I was telling Todd because I, I knew he would appreciate it. And so here I am, you know, we had done the, the citation program for two or three years, garnering all this information on, on 27 inch trout and above. And, really starting to figure out maybe see some trends and, and really be a science, like uh, just study, like study is thirst for knowledge. Just give me information. Let me try to make sense of it. And I, I felt like we were trying to, you know, get after it and, and seeing some of those trends. And so I was talking about that information at that, at that, uh, meeting and I'm looking around the crowd and it was a really, really crowded venue, man. It's like 120 folks. Awesome. Mm. And so I'm looking through, and these two people are like, you kept coming to them. And, I, you know, I'm from a public speaking perspective, military, you obviously want to engage the room and, and you're trying to, you know, bring people in with making eye contact. And But I kept gravitating to these two faces in the crowd. And um, afterwards, you know, I give the speech and, you know, I uh, go up to him. I'm like, I'm sorry, uh, sir, ma'am, have I met you before? And they're like, no, um, where, where are you from? I'm trying to just like piece back a, a past. I'm oh, from Lake Charles. No kidding. I'm from, I'm from New Orleans. Yeah, we heard, you know, you're from New Orleans. No stuff. What, what brings y'all here? Well, you know, we owned a fishing guide business. And that's when it clicked because I was Jeff and Mary Poe. Yeah, okay. And so Jeff and Mary Poe, oh my God, like, you know, the, the volume of big trout that these, that two uh, had, had caught in, in, you know, Louisiana sportsman and sure. all that stuff. It was a very surreal moment for me yeah. and kind of get, get a chance to kind of interface with them. Um, 
but it's little opportunities like that. And, and re- sadly, the reason they've kind of moved part of their God business over to Mobile, Alabama was because that fishery kind of suffered a little bit, especially with, with uh, some low salinity years, uh, maybe a little change in the hydrology, a big mm-hmm. lake in Calicashu. Um, and so, you know, uh, to that end, you know, what are maybe some challenges that face uh, either the, 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 the fishery uh, or the, the, I guess the environment or the habitat, mm-hmm. that's what the word I'm looking for yeah. uh, from your perspective that we can uh, maybe, you know, help with or, or, or do. Yeah, no, that's, um, cause you're right. It's, it's, if you think about it, it's the base of everything. I mean, if we don't have healthy estuaries, if we don't have the oysters and the seagrasses and the marsh grasses and all those things, um, we got nothing. Mm-hmm. And habitat to me is the future. Now you know it, you don't have to talk to me long, and I'll end up saying like five other things that are the future. <laughs> but um, yeah. but but it is but it really is a, an important part of the future. And and so uh, I know that's a big focus for us at CCA is making sure in the areas where we can that we're helping um, rebuild or restore or you know even start oyster reefs to to help in you know, in marsh restoration, um, and then even federally, you know, I mean, we can't forget federal waters, um, you know, doing work offshore to make sure that we have, Mm -hmm. you know, these spots, because what we forget about spots is we tend to just think of them for the fishing aspect, but they're part of the ecological aspect. And, you know, which that in turn creates the healthier resource that there's, you know, better or more spawning. There's better year classes of species that we in particular care about, that the forage base is in great shape. And, and that's interestingly the challenge that we face in, in marine management. Now, when I say we, I mean this is us as an angling community, um, is that it's never one thing, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it is within that whole eco, it's forage issues, it's habitat issues it's all these different things that can affect the fishery and but habitat restoration the thing that i like on two levels is it first obviously restores the habitat so good areas that these species we care about and the food that they eat can thrive but the other thing about habitat is it's real and it's tangible Mm -hmm. the general fishing public can get their hands around it it's a great sort of gateway drug into uh forgive the rough reference but gateway drug into conservation because all of a sudden who can't understand um building a reef because they go oh wow yeah i went and fished a reef you know the other day or fished you know i fished with my dad and he takes me to this reef and we catch speckled trout there um you mean you can restore those things and it's like yeah you can and then they start to understand well well wait a minute well you restore the habitat and and well how's it managed you got to make sure it's managed right over it and you start to get that it's all one big picture. It's funny. This is in a very different region, um, but there's an amazing conservation visionary, a guy named Gary Loomis. If you ever heard of a G. Loomis rod, he's the guy that originally made those. And so Gary started our Washington chapter. And he, um, for years, had was, was friends with a number of folks in our community, obviously, and in our organization. And he would talk about, you know, maybe we should have a CCA up here, maybe we should have a CCA, but maybe not because it's about habitat. And it was all about habitat restoration there. And it was getting their, um, they call them cricks, their creeks, yeah. where all these spawning runs go. So And they restore these runs. And 
so he restores this run behind his really cool camp and um and sure enough the fish come back and he's got this great run going and it was this amazing conservation victory and so the state starts to get numbers on it and the way they manage their fisheries they open it up to gill netting and no they way caught, and they caught all his fish and so gary calls us and says yeah we got to get involved in the management side too so it's all about the habitat but it's also all about the management hmm. and that's that weird little nexus that you got to make sure you got healthy you know, you got a healthy eco for those species to be in, but then you got to make sure they're managed right. So would that be the message that you would tell people that are maybe not CCA members mm -hmm. of, Hey, this is, this is our, this is our battle uh, statement. This is our mission statement mm -hmm. of what we do. Um, or is there something different you would tell non-members uh, of how and why they should be a CCA member. Well, that's a great that's a great question um, because there's probably my answer. I'll answer it even. I, I'll do, take a broader approach to it. Is that they need to get involved with something. I, I obviously have a bias towards CCA, and I've seen what CCA can do. Um, they got to get involved with something, mm -hmm. and um, there's lots of great things to get involved with. But make sure you're part of some entity that's making a difference mm -hmm. and you know maybe there's all you know there's coastal bend bays foundation and galveston bay foundation and groups all over the u.s um you know many many of which we partner with some who maybe we don't that's okay um it gets back to that spark it gets back to that occasion for hope if you get involved it will lead you to the right place mm -hmm. and and so getting involved with cca is what brought me into conservation um, and, and volunteering and trying to make a difference there. But, um, but no matter what, what it is, is not just going fishing, but saying, how can I impact this positively? Yeah. And, and there's many, many ways, there's countless ways people can, um, and, and they can get involved as deeply as they want. I know people that it's literally like a full-time job, even though it's their, their volunteer passion. And I know people that just kind of help out a little bit here and there, or maybe they just, you know, get involved with an action alert on an issue they care about or whatever. But no matter what, the moment they do that intention, they've, they've changed themselves into someone who's doing Mm -hmm. And someone who's going to try to have a vision for the future. And I think that, you know, goes along those lines that, you know, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Yeah, I know yeah. it's a, that's maybe not as targeted that, you know, bottom line is, you know, I like to live an active lifestyle. You do too. And I like to be, uh, and sadly, I'm insanely busy, you know, with raising a family, fishing, work. Um, playing sports and kids sports and my son's trying to get his private pilot's license and work is work. And, and then you got speckled truth um, and recording podcasts and things of that nature. I, uh, it's how I occupy my time. And, mm -hmm. and I like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of how I model my life and build my life. And it's to kind of stay active. Uh, we also try to also provide that sense of understanding that, okay, just cause you're active doesn't mean, um, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. If you're losing that sense of, you know, that core relationship with me and my wife and our family and God family and fishing and kind of in that order, son is kind of what I've been, always been told. And so if we can kind of keep it around that core and remain active, we're good. In other words, you know, if you're looking to kind of get involved into a fishery or 
or do something um, that may or may not be your cup of tea, but at least try to understand more. Again, getting yeah. back to that thirst for knowledge, maybe attend a chapter meeting and just yeah. listen. Just check it uh, out. So um, I've, I've given a few speeches at, at some of the, the local mm-hmm. membership. Mm-hmm. I've been uh, pretty humbled to do that, and I, I've appreciated that, mainly because it's, again, I really like listening to people's stories and how they yeah. got into fishing and connecting with that because that's inspiring, man, yeah. is to kind of hear how people got into fishing and then all of a sudden while you're at a CCA meeting, oh, it's because I wanted to listen to you know, something or see what's going on or yeah. whatever it is. And that's okay. That's, yeah. that's, yeah. that's okay. So what would you tell members, current members, um, that are out there? Like if you were to impart a, a message to them, uh, what would you, what would you tell current members? Well, I think a couple things I, I'd say, make sure they stay involved. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure that they remember they can make a difference. And, I'm always reminded um, if I'm speaking to a chapter or even just attending a chapter meeting, just like you're saying, you get it's kind of a humbling moment um, because you see all these people that are giving their evening um, and their time to a cause. Mm -hmm. That's really inspiring. Um, The thing I also am real quick to point out to people is that remember, you know, we talked about the heralded 14 anglers that kicked off GCCA and, and really did do an amazing thing by kicking that off of, of, you know, eliminating gill nets in a lot of areas, plus all kinds of other things, you know, be it habitat or hatcheries or all these things, um, is that if you go to your local chapter and you sit around there with a bunch of guys and gals that care about the resource and have a meeting that night, that's the same as those original 14. It's no different. It's the same passion that's in that room is the passion that was in the, in that room in 1977. Mm-hmm. And when people, I, I've said that to people before, and I can see the light go off in their eyes, where all of a sudden they're like, oh, wow. Because they feel like that may be past them. You can't make a difference now, or who knows what. So, I mean, my advice to people would be don't lose your beginner spirit on, on anything and, and in fishing and in conservation mm-hmm. is make sure you remember that there's some way to make a difference and and it starts with one step i mean mm-hmm. as corny as that sounds it starts by like I say going to a chapter meeting and and even if you just want to hear the guide or speaker that evening because you just you know want to learn to get better um it makes a huge difference you might hear one person say one thing or talk to somebody in the local chapter and they create a spark and look up and you're you're really helping mm-hmm. yeah and i mean you know, Jay is very active in it now. Jay Watkins, you mm-hmm. know, in his his Instagram uh, and providing kind of those teaching moments. Um, but until you actually go and engage and listen to the man in person, yeah, it's a different context. Well, he, I mean, seeing him through video and on an Instagram, social media, and then actually seeing him in front of you as mannerisms, uh, his ability to kind of communicate, break things down, and then and then how you you can apply it. Yeah, it, just a teaching. No, teacher's God, man. Well, I mean, an inspiring person. He was he was the guy that that you didn't want to share customers with, you know, because <laughs> because they're like they're they're like this guy's so inspirational, and then he like you know goes and runs a marathon after the trip, and I mean you know yeah. it was always like he was like some Olympian, and and you're like yeah I know you fished with Jay, I get it, <laughs> you know because because he is that I mean he's that good, and 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 he is that kind of spirit that that. I, and, and honestly wants to help people get better. Mm-hmm. I mean, you kind of can't fake that. 
you can't fake wanting people to improve and 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 clearly he does and also talk about someone who's never lost their beginner spirit oh my i mean that that's inspiring that i mean someone who's caught four bajillion trout and has run more trips than than you know probably anyone on our coast um who, who's active now and um and he's still on fire that's and you could see cool. it like oh that's cool in his videos but you know seeing and and i've been super fortunate in, in many occasions to actually get to see and interface with jay in a personal setting um when you do that and you see him in his videos, not only do you get his videos more, but when you actually see and visualize the real thing and kind of get a chance to kind of engage that, oh my gosh, it's, it's a much more, um, I guess, embracing uh, situation. You know, it's, it's immersive, totally yeah. immersive. Yeah, that's... Um, and so to the chapter meetings, you know, yeah, you might be on a fence about conservation or CCA or other, other ways mm -hmm. in which you can get involved, but maybe once you go in person... Oh man, it's actually it's a lot, a lot different. It's a much more immersive yeah. environment, and oh, maybe I can engage here. This is where maybe I do something in my, you know, my uh, job that that might impact here or whatever it is. And and it just one, you know, one thing leads to another. You start pulling the thread of, of getting involved. You're so right. You're making such a good point there. Because I mean, I think back, particularly when I was a fishing guy, there were any number of things that that I didn't agree with that GCCA did, you know, or or whatever group. It, but that doesn't really matter. I mean, if it, if you got to agree 100% with a group to try to get involved and make a difference, then you're never getting involved with anything. <laughs> I mean, think about it. I mean, you're sure as heck never going to go to a hearing on some fisheries issue and voice your opinion because if you think that council or commission or whatever body is going to do exactly what you want, then you're in a different world. And I think that's true with getting involved with groups is you got to know that, you know, it's – it's a process and it's a lot of people in that process. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's, you know, I mean, like I say, I, there, there could be any given issue that I might not, and you know, somewhere in my heart, I might be still thinking about it going, well, I don't know if this is this, that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Um, you know, nobody predicts it perfectly and nobody probably this day and age as much as any, um, gets exactly the answer they thought was right. And, and I will say this through time, how many times I've been taught this in fishing and I've been taught this in fisheries management, how many times I thought I was right and I was wrong. I mean, dead up. Mm -hmm. And I mean, a, a pattern in fishing that I thought worked and didn't work and it turned out it was the opposite of what I thought. Given this situation, that situation, the same thing in fisheries management. I've thought, okay, if we, you know, if this happens and this happens, then this is going to happen. And um, it doesn't. Is there a specific... Uh, time or event that you saw like in fishing where you know uh, what you thought was supposed to happen uh, didn't happen and oh, uh, and that humility that yeah. hits you in the face well, like a two by four there's, there's probably hundreds of them <laughs> um, I'll tell you there's one that jumps to my mind immediately it's funny it was back in the early trout masters days um, when it was I think Mickey had just started sort of running them I think there was something previous to that possibly and I can't remember but it it at least got on my radar when he really took over them. And, um, and I remember, um, particularly, well, it was eye opening on so many levels as an aside there, it, it, 
it showed me how many amazing fishing fishermen there were because you kind of get in your own world and particularly back then you know you were a Galveston guy or you were a Matagorda guy or whatever was in their little pocket a little more and all of a sudden people started fishing each other's bays and you started to realize man there's some amazingly nimble fishermen out there that are adaptive and that it really set apart some mm-hmm. um but I distinctly remember one where it was a, a it was pre-fishing at Trout Masters. There was a great pattern on the North Shoreline East Galveston Bay. Um, we were on some some harder structure, and then a big front blows in right before the tournament. We all know that feeling. Drops the tide just dramatically. Um, it was a fall tournament, if I remember correctly. And um, and so what happens on the North Shoreline is you tide falls enough, it just turns into mud, unless you're out on some deep shell. And, um, but where those fish had been, it was more just a harder bottom. It wasn't as much the shell. And so I abandoned the spot. I abandoned the idea, but there were a bunch of people from other bay systems that had, were on the roughly same pattern and they didn't abandon it. And because, uh, well, apparently I'm going to put air quotes around, they weren't as smart as me. <laughs> so I go off and do whatever, yeah. you know, fool's Aaron I did and, and, and they show up with these monster stringers of fish like the ones we've been catching. And I'm like, as I'm starting to figure it out and ask people, I'm like, what happened? They went out deep and those fish had just suspended over the mud. And, you know, that made no sense to me. I was like, well, Mm -hmm. that didn't happen. And it did. Which, again, those moments are so important to become a better angler. Is being humbled is not a bad thing. You know, it is a good thing. (laughs) Because it's where you start to go, okay, wait a minute. I think I need to rethink this and you start to think bigger and you start to think I got a lot to learn which is great that's where the beginner spirit comes Mm -hmm. because then all of a sudden you're like man I got to get better and Mm -hmm. you know I don't I don't think there's ever a moment where I thought I was it it was just that I was I would have told you that I could have dissected most East Galveston Bay patterns at that time and it was just a great wake-up call to say it's really exciting if you look at it the right way you say look how much I still have to learn yeah you know and so I think we still have that today. Was there a uh, specific trout masters, um, not not in humility, but just in general? Was there a certain you know time when you were fishing the trout masters uh, that stands out to you? A memory that stands out to you? You know, um, there again, there were, I, y'all won one. Is that we, I, 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 there was one? I won a, a Galveston one. Um, and, and then we had various wins on our boat. It was, it was a guy, okay. uh, Leon Napoli, and then, uh, Doc Signs and myself that fished, obviously, you know, you're fishing as an individual, but we were kind of a little, you know, people mm-hmm. sort of traveled in packs, you know, yeah, there, was, yeah, yeah. there were groups of twos and threes and whatever, all that fished. Um, and I mean, and I will tell you this, you know, um, all of us had our strengths. Um, Leon was born old school. I mean, this is a dude that could fish and new spots that were just kind of different than a lot of us. Cause he came from such an old school perspective, which made him really deadly in the tournament. And, um, there were probably some moments throughout those tournaments where we as a group would be fishing an area that the three of us didn't know. And we managed to find some fish. And what it taught me was the basics are still the basics. Hmm. And because you get in your own region and you get, caught up in patterns you know because you you that's just what we do because you can pattern fish but then you go to a different region and then you're really about signs and about you know 
maybe even at that point, it was kind of the studying the map and thinking, okay, this looks like this. And so they ought to be here. It, it was really exciting because it reminded you there's so many places to go. And, mm-hmm. and in a very positive way, it opened up the coast to very many people. Which, you know, some people may cringe if I say that because they're thinking, oh my goodness, they're, now they're fishing everywhere. Yeah. Um, but it also opened up people's vision toward the broader landscape of the fishery and that it plays out differently in different areas. And each one needs to be fished differently, but also you need to be careful to make sure you're paying attention to what every fishery needs. Yeah, and you had mentioned that before, which was, yeah, there, and, and it took me a minute to kind of, you know, uh, conceptualize that, that, yeah, okay, we're all on a Texas coast, but the upper coast is completely different from the lower yeah. coast. And based on the hydrology, based on, you know, the environment of those, yeah, I mean, you're trying to kind of broad stroke, uh, maybe, you know, conservation practices or, you know, different programs to, to those base systems. Well, you know, if you do it in that broad brush, it might not necessarily apply to all. Uh, and it may, require a little bit more of a unique or tailored approach to a certain base system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I never thought of that before because, yeah, I mean, thinking of a Baffin complex and then thinking of um, like a Matagorda or shoot, even like uh, like a, a Sabine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? look at Sabine. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah. Sabine is Mars to... You know, I mean, it's it's totally different than than even Galveston. I mean, in a lot of ways, and then and then lo and behold, go to the Laguna Madre, and we're talking yeah. about, and one's not better than the other, just just so different. different. And so, you know, managers have to manage often in broad strokes, and I get that. Um, you know, for a thousand different reasons, they have to. Um, but I think with that too, though, we can do things, particularly in habitat, that certain areas need certain concentrations on mm-hmm. certain things. And but we've seen, let's just say, in Texas, um, we've had a very adaptive Parks and Wildlife Department by them, you know, looking and, and saying what well, needs to be three fish at least to here, and and or let's say when the five fish movement sort of went up the coast and it hit great resistance and they sort of paused and then and then it ended up pushing the rest of the way. Um, you know, management's a careful balance and yeah. we, we always want to indict fisheries managers and, and there's plenty of times I'm, I'm right in the middle of it, particularly in the federal fisheries. Um, but it is a challenging thing to do, um, mm-hmm. because the science isn't always perfect and the management measures always are often, um, you know, really have some politics in them that can create challenges in terms of doing what's right and some of it's well what is right you know what's right depending on the different perspectives so it's it that's probably the thing if someone asked me what i've learned the most in conservation is is the value of balance Mm -hmm. and making sure that you're doing things where you're you're conserving the resource but you're also being careful to anglers access to it you know back to that story about david wright shaking his finger at me we've got to always make sure anglers want to go so they're there and there's spots for them to go to. Mm-hmm. Two more questions. First, um, you got to give me some, some dirt on, on Lowell Odom. So what, what's the story <laughs> I, that I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know dirt other than I, nah, I he's yeah, I know Lowell's such a good guy. You talk about a character, you yeah. know, he was oh. born a character. I, I promise you, he, he probably could give you that smirk when he was like 18 months old. Yep. 
just great, yeah, he's dude. great so, dude. So uh, a guy named Jim Freebel introduced me to him um, because uh, Freebel had grown up with David Wright, actually. Yeah. And, um, and so anyway, I got to know Lowell through that. And Lowell was great because so I was Lowell was a good soul that he is was trying to convince me to relocate to Rockport back in like 1990 because what was funny in in that freeze in the 89 freeze is all of our stuff was dead um, in in Galveston but Rockport they were still catching some fish I mean they mm. were still running trips and they were still doing well and he's like you know he'd call and say you know what'd you catch today and I'm like well like a flounder and two trout. Yeah. And he'd be like, yeah, you need to change base systems, man. And, um, which actually speaks to character, yeah. you know, who invites another fishing guide to try to say, you need to come down here and start building this business. So he, he sent us some pictures, um, of him and like, uh, it's funny. I'll call him the toothpick for a while because he had that <laughs> toothpick when he was trying to dip, quit dipping. And, uh, yeah, it was like a stage photo where he's picking up a trout, you know, it's got like the, the water kind of cascade yeah, and yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a still, you know, and, and I'm like, man, he still wear them shirts these days. Like, get the hell out of here. You know, like, <laughs> no, and so funny. I'm like, Hey man, this year I'm every, every picture I take, I'm going to have a toothpick hanging out my mouth. He's like, in tribute to Lowell. Get the hell out of here. Oh, that's anyway, so funny. Nah, he's a good dude. Um, I was, I was more so for, but the last question I want to ask you and <clears throat> it's, it's maybe something that maybe may or may not mean a lot to you, but, uh, is there a moment in fishing or a catch, uh, trout, uh, specifically it'd be great, but, um, is there a catch that kind of stands out in your memory that would kind of, uh, encapsulate your, I guess, approach or, or feeling to, uh, or passion for this fishery? Well, that's a hard one. Um, there's probably a lot of them. Uh, I, I'd actually would probably go back to one, which was my dad, mm -hmm. and was my dad. Um, I mean, so how many young anglers um, say, "Well, my dad." Every yeah. story of 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 Mine's of my is, dad is my dad, sure, yep. and my dad was real into flounder fishing. And, um, he had the patience of like a barnacle. And so he could, so he was kind of got pretty good at it. He wasn't that great at other kinds of fishing. Um, but he got pretty good at it because he could just sit there by one piling for long enough until I guess a flounder either took mercy on him or one swam finally landed near him. But I remember him flipping this big white dotted Southern flounder up on the deck. And, and, and I remember being awed by that. I mean, I don't know how young I was. I was quite young. Um, and, and that, that all word is why it was so important mm -hmm. because it opened up the zoo to me. All of a sudden I was like, look at all these animals mm -hmm. and you can actually go catch them. Yeah. And so all of a sudden it was like my whole life was looking at the fishing almanacs and looking at the Gulf fishes of this and the Gulf fishes of that, trying to learn species and trying to think about targeting species and then you start to dig into, you know, whatever at that time you've got saltwater sportsmen or you got Texas fishermen or whatever all pubs were around then. And, and I bet it's a very similar story to air. I bet a lot of anglers have a version of that same story where then I was just all in. Yeah. And so, you know, I got so many memories through time of, of amazing trips and, and, and the fish, but also I think the other way I'd answer it is the people. 
Man, I have met so many amazing, inspiring people, yourself included, mm-hmm. through this process yeah. that, that you know, just us talking before the podcast and during the podcast, like, it fires me up. I'm fired up. You know, it's like you want to go fish more. You want to go try to make a difference more. You want to try to do this. And it's that energy you get from other people. Um, that may be the real secret formula that's embedded in fishing mm-hmm. and, and maybe so in conservation as well. That's a good point. Uh, cause it is always, you know, uh, the fish, right? The fish is the goal. Yeah. But you know, thinking back and reflection, maybe it is the people. Yeah. It a lot know? of times is my gosh. I, Never in my wildest dreams would one I be sitting here with you and you know driving up to Jay Watkins' house and ringing his doorbell and sitting there and sitting in David Rousey's garage or you know Mike Blackwood's house holding the state record trout and let alone underneath Paul Brown's uh, house in Lake Charles you know and talking with him and Bruce you know and, and shoot you know I mean I've reflected on that a little bit but yeah of course that that thing, that trout, that, that, that fish kind of binds us and it's brings crazy. us all together. But it's because we have that in, in insane passion for that little fish that, that drives us crazy. And I think we appreciate, and I think to some extent, all those names that we uh, just mentioned, you included James Plog and, you know, all those, all those names. I think at the core of it is that all those people were respect that fish yeah yeah well i mean so many of them dedicated all the ones we're talking about they dedicated their lives to it in one way shape or form and 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 even if it's not you know it and it manifests in so many different ways but the depth of character of the people we're talking about really is (laughs) it is cool i mean it's really is cool is that you know i mean it's we we have a lot of different types of of people in there and um and and to me that's probably if I my my takeaway on fishing because the fish begin to blur but the people never do you ever notice that Mm -hmm. you know that I mean you know you might remember a particular fish here or there or something but it's really the memories of that you know that sunrise with your dad or Mm -hmm. you know sitting talking to Paul and Phyllis Brown and and just you know it's just I mean I remember Phyllis going up the steps you can hear him in a podcast and I remember watching her you know and she's because she was coming down and basically making sure, you know, he had enough to drink. And See, but that's her. Okay, so, yeah, right. so when she just Phyllis, sparked right? her mind, so she used to always make sure there was A&W root beer in the fridge because when I'd come by, that was I, I was a, a root beer guy. And um, and I, I did, I just, she, she just sparked that memory. And all of a sudden, it's like I, I'm right there. I can see the Goldfish Aquarium. I can see Paul <laughs> sitting in his chair. I can see that little cooler they had right there. And, um, and that is everything to do with the, about the fish, but nothing to do with about the fish. Yeah. It's the people. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, that's, I think, a pretty sound place to end it, mainly because, man, um, as you reflect, and hopefully as folks listen to this, you know, it's not maybe just two guys talking about that, but you know, you know, may or may not have seen that kind of in your own endeavor of fishing, and, and hopefully that's, you know, somewhat whatever the takeaway, not only what you can and can't do, uh, particularly what you can do uh, to get engaged into a fishery, you know, to Pat's points, and but really, um, you know, really getting back to the art of fishing, the sport back into sport fishing. Um, and really what you find is over the, the course of time, you know, it's really maybe less about the fish and more about the people. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, maybe that's a great way to maybe sum up uh, this podcast in and of itself. So, uh, well, thanks so much, Mr. Pat. I truly appreciate. That was my. It was, it is same thing. It was my pleasure. Day. It was an honor for me to be here. I, I enjoyed the conversation before the podcast and during the podcast. I, I, I walk away better from this conversation. I appreciate so I, it, sir. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Uh, for everyone else, um, thanks again for sticking around. If you can, uh, definitely show some of our uh, sponsors some love. Custom Corky, uh, Texas Custom Lures, Real Sportswear, Waterloo Rods, Stinky Pants Fishing, uh, Mirror and uh, Down South Lures. Um, honestly, without their support uh, for this podcast, uh, that none of this becomes a reality. And so I, I really appreciate them. And and hopefully you do too. And if you can show them some love and, and support them in their businesses as they try to create a living and provide us some remarkable products for uh, chasing these large fish. So until next time, guys, uh, tight lines, God bless. And always remember, take what you need and release the rest. God bless.